You're listening to Perspectives in Parryville. Today, my guest is Christy Tucker, a learning experience designer. In this episode, we explore the world of storytelling, technology, and the use of scenarios in teaching, learning, and other educational situations. We chat about stories with multiple pathways, that is, non-linear narratives and the many decisions a reader makes as they work their way through, for example, a choose-your-own-adventure book, shaping a unique story along the way. We explore how this approach is similar to the use of non-linear branching scenarios, sometimes used in online workplace training. Christy shares some ideas on why she uses this engaging approach, how she plans the scenario content, and then gets organized to manage often complex collections of content. We also explore the multiple decisions that learners need to make in order to travel through such a scenario, leading to many potential learner pathways. To manage the complexity of this, we explore Twine, an open source tool for telling interactive nonlinear stories. Christy also shares insights into the different approaches she uses when designing and developing learner feedback, such as intrinsic feedback as compared to instructional feedback, with both approaches having value within a training experience. We find out about the value and practical use of learner profiles and folio-based assessments that help students structure and organise their evidence. Finally, Christy offers a range of insights on a few fundamentals in this space, especially around well-written learning outcomes and the use of good writing. Here's my conversation with Christy Tucker. Thanks for joining us, Christy. Thanks for having me, Mark. Um, now, I understand that you have a background in music and teaching mm-hmm. and you work with technology and storytelling. So can you take us back, take us back a number of years? Yeah. So my career has always been about helping people learn in one way or another. So I started out as a K-12 music and band teacher. Um, So literally my first teaching job, I taught high school band, high school music appreciation, junior high band, fifth grade band, fifth grade band lessons, and general music for kindergarten, first grade, third grade, and fifth grade. And what was and that I like? Was driving a, and I was driving over an hour each way as a commute. And that was exhausting. <laughs> and so then I decided, well, I want to try and teach just one age group. And so I got a job teaching middle school music um, and band. And that was fun, but there are people who have that gift for teaching the middle school, junior high age kids. And I don't actually have that gift. So they'd be (laughs) about. That's a hard age. So that's in the, in the U S that age would be um, like we had fifth graders through eighth graders, which was like 10 year olds to 14, 15 year olds. And it's a challenging age and I have great respect for everybody who 
can teach that age and survive it. Uh, and I've taught I, that age and I didn't survive it. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I quit after two years of, of teaching that age and went to go. Uh, I did then corporate software training. I taught um, people, went to companies and taught people how to use Microsoft Office mostly. Um you know, taught people how to use Excel and PowerPoint. I'd always been the teacher that the other teachers came to to say, oh, you're doing your gradebook in Excel and you've got weighted grades in your gradebook. How did you set that up in Excel? Or how did you make this thing work in PowerPoint? You know how to do that. And so I was, I was the teacher that everybody asked about those technology questions. And so teaching people about technology made sense. And frankly, adults were easier to teach than 14-year-old girls. 14-year-old yeah. girls are mean. I guess it's those adult learning principles and, uh, you know, the, the kind of behavioural <laughs> yes. elements of that younger age learner. Correct. Correct. <laughs> and, and you know, I got into, to, you know, I got into teaching adults and was like, yeah, nothing you can do scares me because you, it's, it's just, you know, it's, it's, it, and it was fun and I could, I could do that. And, th and that was fun. Um, and then the company I was working for closed that office that I was working out of. And I started looking at things and started researching online and found this field of instructional design that I had not heard of before and thought, oh, well, you know, this is all of the curriculum planning things that I really liked when I was teaching. And that was one thing, although I really liked working with the adult learners with when I was doing that training work, I was teaching completely from curriculum that somebody else had written and doing very little of like creating a little lesson here and there that was, you know, something on my own. But having gone from when I was teaching music where I was doing lots of lesson planning and creating the curriculum and doing things myself to the training job where I was really following a script a lot um and i missed that creation you know i missed the planning of the like you know okay well if this is the learning objective and i need them to be here at the end how do i get them from where they are now to where i need them to be and planning out all of the activities along the way i was going to ask you what what was the um what were some of the enjoyable aspects of you when you were teaching music i kind of yeah. was imagining your day-to-day well, what was your day-to-day -day, uh, teaching like? So so because I, you know, I think one of the things with teaching music is that it is very hands-on in ways that a lot of other subjects are not. Um, and so it was when I was teaching band, we were mostly rehearsing and doing things like you play for a little bit and then you talk maybe to explain like okay this is how this rhythm works so we're gonna you know let's clap this tam ti 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 ta tam ti 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 ta tam ti ta ah. right we're gonna clap those rhythms and do that and we did things in all of the different ways of you know having the visuals and the audio and physically doing things yeah it's embodied and yeah it's it's embodied in in ways and you are practicing it and doing it and you rehearse over and over doing those skills and I in in learning how to be a music teacher I had learned um doing a, a spiral curriculum where you prepare something you're 
presenting one, say you're uh, preparing topic A, you're presenting topic B, and you're practicing topic C, which you'd presented previously. And then in the next lesson, you're going to present A and you're going to practice B and C. And that you'd, so that you'd always be coming back to skills periodically. Yep. And now the, you know, trend is talking about spaced repetition and spaced learning. And we didn't use that phrase in learning, but it was this spiral and it was, you know, that concept of it from, you know, the Kodai method or the ORF method in music teaching. These are the, you know, of things that it's like, yeah, that, that idea still applies. And while yes, there are differences between teaching kids and adults, that idea of giving people opportunities to practice, understanding that they won't get it just because you told them, right? It's one thing to, right, I can tell you that, okay, a half note gets two beats. However, we're going to have to practice it a bunch for you to get that and read music, especially to read music fast enough to do it, um, you know, to do it at the speed that you need to in order to read music, right? I can tell you every good boy does fine. And as the letters of the notes in the treble clef. And even if you can memorize that, it still doesn't necessarily mean that you can read those notes fast enough to sight read a piece of music as you're going by. Yeah, it's like it's um, got its own built-in assessment almost because it's like if it, if it doesn't come out for the audience to hear, right. then there's a problem. That skill yeah. is, is still emerging. Right. <laughs> and the assessment that matters is the performance of that skill in ways that is is very different from the way that we often assess things like math or english that it that we nowhere to hide in a way yeah there's there's less there's less place to hide and you you do have to actually do the performance and and in some cases in music it actually can go too far it's it's the you learn to play and you learn just enough to like do your part and do your thing. And you don't actually learn enough of the theory to understand, well, this is actually the chords that are going on underneath. And this is where you are in the chord and understanding some of the big picture, or this is the structure overall of this piece. So in music, you sometimes actually go so far that it's not the abstract. Whereas you look at something like math can be, very abstract without the application, even though there's lots of application that can be done. And at least in math, we tend to get lots of repetitive practice. But it's often taught very abstract and not in terms of the skills that you're going to be using, where in music, it's so much of the skills as you will be using them. Teaching software was sort of the same thing, right? It's the open up Microsoft Excel and, you know, open up this sample file and then we're going to create a pivot table based on those things. And and so I'd show it and then the learners would do it. And then I'd walk around the room and see if they managed to get it. And then, you know, they'd get frustrated because I knew the shortcut in Excel to show whether I, to show, to display all the formulas. So if they just typed in all the, the answers without actually using the formulas, then I could see it. And 
Well, that's a skill in itself. That all those formulas that go into an Excel kind of after that equal mm-hmm. sign. How do you? Yeah. <laughs> so you're you you've kind of like made a transition away from classroom teaching and and music yeah. into kind of teaching software. And then yeah. what happened? You were kind of it was um it, it was kind of going well by the sounds of it for you. Yeah, I mean, I, I I liked it and and it was fun, but I I got laid off and needed to figure out what was going to be next. And so I had um, done the research and, and applied for a lot of jobs um, and eventually got a job with um, what was a fully online university. Now this is in 2004. So there just weren't that many fully online degree programs in 2004. Um, and so I got an instructional design job and the role at that point was that I would work with faculty or experts who would do part of the writing for content for a course. Um, the curriculum was all planned out via committee and program chairs in advance, but we'd get a list of learning objectives and figure out, pick the textbook and plan out within that structure and they do things. And I would um, storyboard basically plan out in PowerPoint um, some activities so that they could do practice activities. That would be the online activities. I'd coach the faculty through writing discussion forum prompts and assignments. One of the interesting things of that online university is that we did not do exams. We did not do traditional academic ex- essays how did they because oh yeah because yeah so so the assessments right so the assessments were the idea was to do authentic assessment that if you're getting a marketing degree it's more useful to learn how to make powerpoint presentations and write white papers than it is for you to write an academic essay Uh, so when i had a course on the first the first program i was working on was organizational psychology And so we had a course on change management. And so we had a scenario. So wrote a little case study of, you know, you're working as the director of HR. These two companies are merging. You're in charge of helping make this merger happen and making everybody feel like they belong. So here's here's what you've got, the two org charts, and now you're going to make the new org chart and assign people to different places. Oh, you've got this problem that happened at one of these offices what are you going to do because of, you know, how are you going to handle this situation? So write up your response of how you would handle this, write up something for the company newsletter that's going to go out to explain, you know, this particular thing with the value, you know? So those were the sorts of assessments that we did. So it was all based on these stories, these scenarios and you did it within this case and you did sort of projects related to that. Sounds then, very project project yeah. based. Yeah. Yeah, it was it was very project based learning. Um again, we didn't we weren't necessarily using that that term of project based learning, but but that was my introduction to instructional design was doing real products and applying and practicing things. And so even though I do self-paced learning now and I do 
self-paced e-learning now instead of the instructor-led, and I'm mostly doing organizational e-learning now rather than universities with instructors. Um, it's still a lot of the idea of how do we get people to practice and think about it the way that they would if they were doing performance, just like it's that old, the old music teacher, band teacher of how do we prepare, prepare them for performance. You're listening to Perspectives in Parallel. So this this phrase, I'm familiar with scenario-based approaches to, to teaching and learning, but what does it mean? How do you define scenario-based learning? So I tend to define it very broadly and potentially more broadly than some other definitions that you might see from, from other sources. So I think that there are a pretty wide range of ways that we can use scenarios in learning. Often people are thinking about the branching scenarios or simulations. So a branching scenario is like if you read Choose Your Own Adventure books where you'd go along a little bit. Yes. Yes. Yep. Yep. So you you go along a little bit, you make a decision, and then you jump to page, you know, if you chose to turn left, jump to page 45. If you choose to turn right, jump to page 73. Mm. I'm going to just get one, actually. Yeah, those sorts of books in in training. So, so the branching scenarios are one of the ways to do it. Yes. The classic... The abominable snowman. I have. I, I was gonna say they're all in my. They're, I don't have them in this room in the bookcase that's behind me right now. But I've got several of them. I've got. I can recommend the uh, board game, card game, the the board game version of it. I've done. There's a there's game of it that's very much in the classic thing. Um, that's uh that's a lot. That's a lot of fun. And and you know I grew up with those choose your own adventure stories. I think a lot of us did. Um. Well, in this one, there's 28 possible endings. Yes. Sorry, I I interrupted you then. No, no, that's okay. But yeah, so those books, if you're familiar with those sorts of books, that's sort of what a branching scenario is for training, where it is you are, you know, having a conversation with someone and, you know, what do you respond next? Now, that mechanism actually is used, frankly, in a lot of, video games too. There's a lot of games that also use that sort of mechanism of you have a conversation simulation and you have three choices and what happens next, the choices that are available to you next are dependent on what you said or what choice you made. And so that's often what people mean by scenario-based learning. I also include in my definitions some, some less extensive and complicated versions of scenarios than the branching scenarios. Here's a book I'm reading about. It's called Simple Tools. It's taking a very simple approach to training or, you know, any sort of education. Mm -hmm. So how do you – what's the simpler version in terms of scenario-based approaches? I think one of the simplest versions is to do sort of a one-question mini-scenario 
for assessment. So we do in, in lots of training and education, we do multiple choice questions, right? I mean, multiple choice questions are going to be one of our tools because we need to have automatic grading and we can't all sit and grade papers forever. Um, it just it just is not feasible in either classrooms or in workplace training. You you you, you can't scale it. A lot of the multiple choice questions that we have in in workplace training and and education too are very abstract or they're really just measuring recall. Uh, yes, it's, can I have you remember? That. Right, right. Can you remember the thing that we said five minutes ago? Or in education, maybe a little bit longer timeline of like, can you remember the thing that we learned in class two weeks ago? And it's really just memorizing. And and we do need to remember things, right? You need to remember things in order to be able to apply them. Mm. But when we're talking about workplace training, we want people to be able to perform and we want people to be able to think and make good decisions. Part of our job as instructional designers is to help people make better decisions. I like that's a big concept, isn't it? I it is like a big it. concept. So no, I know that so that's, I know where we should be it, doing like simple things here. But but you can have a question that is, you know, the difference between an abstract question of, well, what are the rules for overtime and when do you have to pay someone overtime? Versus a specific example of Luis as a manager and his his employee, Amanda, has um, worked 36 hours already this week, and she's going to come in on Saturday, do an extra eight hour shift. Does she Boy. do? Is that right? Is that four hours of regular time and four hours of overtime? Is that eight hours of overtime? Or is it all regular time? Because in the two weeks, it's going to even out. That's a decision where you apply it in context. And is a lot more useful for measuring performance than the how many hours per week does someone work before it counts as overtime. And I don't know yeah. what the Australian rules are in the U.S. It's a 40-hour <laughs> week. I don't know what your your legal rules they, are. They, but. they change in in terms of the workplace or the field or, you know. But um, right. Now, one of the things I guess that just came to mind is that um, – uh, one of the one of the big things, people that are not learning designers, instructional designers, learning experience designers, mm -hmm. um, they don't often understand that you don't need to be a subject matter expert in order to do your work, to perform right. your role, because something like you're outlining, like the nitty gritty of um, the the kind of the workplace hours of work and the overtime and whatever you just you just ask a subject matter expert or you know you've got access ready access to that information mm -hmm. so i guess that just makes me think what does what does your role entail in terms of a scenario building up a scenario because i'm following so far it's not the yeah. abominable snowman but it's just as exciting the workplace with louise what how right. does that sit within a context right so that was one of the big shifts for me from switching from being a teacher and a software trainer where I was the expert who knew the most in the room. I was the person who knew the most in the room. And as an instructional <laughs> designer, I'm the expert on the learning and the technology, but I am not the person in the room who knows the most about that content. 
Yeah. No, it's so profound. It's so straightforward yet profound, that shift. Mm -hmm. And so I guess and it sounds like that was quite comfortable anyway for you. And and so, you know, I think it it helps, you know, it, to be curious about everything. You know, I, I do find like all of these, I've worked on lots of different kinds of things. It is one of the things I love about the job I've done bulldozer safety and I'm, and you know, stormwater, pre preventing stormwater pollution and training for doctors on how to talk to patients and to encourage better behaviors and how to influence people and nutrition counseling and um, advising, uh, training for advisors who help international students and volunteer training for a large nonprofit and like all of these different things. And I, I love it because I'm always learning something new and I do get to work with really interesting subject matter experts. So my process for a scenario is that we always start out with, for one thing, identifying what the learning objectives are, because just like any other training, we need to have a learning objective. We need to know where we're going and what it is that we're trying to practice or assess. And then I, I interview the subject matter experts and I have a long list of questions that I will use. And sometimes I will, um, you know, sometimes sometimes with a SME, I can say, well, tell me an example of a time when somebody did this really well and how did it go? Walk me through the process. If somebody does everything right, what are the steps? What does that look like? Okay, what mistakes do people make? Where are the places that people get stuck? And a lot of times in training, we talk only about the way to do things right, and we don't really delve into the mistakes. And that's one thing where branching scenarios are really good is we find out where are the places that people get stuck, because that actually is the thing we need to train and focus on. So, you know, tell me those mistakes. Where do people get stuck? What do people do wrong? If somebody gets confused here, where what are they going to do? And then if they make that mistake, what happens? What's the consequences? And those mistakes and consequences end up being choices in the scenario. And so I will interview a subject matter expert and then I go and write it. I use uh, a free open source tool called Twine to map what? because if I'm not doing, yeah, if I'm not doing linear content, right? We do a lot of the training that we do is linear. Um, I find that tools like Word and PowerPoint, well, you can make it work in, in any tool. Um, a, a branching scenario where, you know, you have an A, B, and C and crossing paths potentially yeah. is easier in a tool that's designed for nonlinear content. Yeah, and I guess that's, twine, a that's a concept, yeah. isn't it? Like, because it's yes. linear, like yeah. people that haven't entered into this kind of territory Right. It's a, every what are you even talking about? Whereas if yeah. you've got so many scenario of so many decisions to make, then there's mm -hmm. all these little pathways and it mm -hmm. starts to get very, very cluttered. Whereas yes. a linear scenario is really straightforward, one after the other, right. after the other. So yep. sorry, you're gonna tell us about this this software that helps with that. Yeah. So so Twine is designed for creating interactive fiction which is essentially fiction where 
you read some of the text and then you make a choice. It's it's the electronic version of a choose your own adventure book. In fact, several of the projects that have been built in Twine are taking old choose your own adventure books and putting them into an electronic format so that you can click rather than turning pages and flipping back and forth in the book. Yeah. I just just to get people up to speed. I mean, to be honest, yeah. I'm not a um I'm not I I've read choose your own adventure books, but I wasn't deeply mm -hmm. into them as such. Yeah. But for those people that haven't aren't familiar, it's basically you read, 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 read. There's page one, page two, page three, page four. And then if you decide to cancel your meeting and search for Carlos, turn to page five. Or if you feel that Carlos is okay and go ahead with your plan, turn to page six. And then there's also an option, blah, 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 turn to page eight turn to page 10. So there's all these different things going on. So arguably, you may not actually read every word in the book because you, you're constantly right. flicking to different um, little chunks of text, I guess, but exactly. in order to get the yeah. story, to develop the story. Exactly. And, and in a book like that, you know, if the book has 120 pages, you might get to an ending after reading only 20 or 25 pages. But the, um, in fact, <laughs> the, the classic two shred adventure books are sort of well known for having all sorts of ways that you die and don't, you know, or, or have a hor reach a horrible fate. Um, in training, we tend to not usually have the endings be quite so bad. And, and always there is the like, Okay, well, you can either go back to the beginning or you can figure out how to, you know, kind of go back one decision and sort of so that it'll it'll happen that way. Because in training, of course, we want people to have a safe place to fail. We want them to actually make the mistakes. If we're training customer service, we, in fact, kind of want to give them the here's the the angry response that you should never say to the customer so that you can try that out in training and have the customer get really mad at you and get it out of your system in training and then not do it in real life with a real person in front of you. And so that's, you know, that's one of the brilliant things about branching scenarios is that you can practice and you can fail and it's okay because once you fail, then you can either go back to the beginning of the, of the story. Many of these branching scenarios now for training, we tend to be much smaller, right? You talked about that That Choose Your Own Adventure book has 28 different endings. Um, I did make one training, one branching scenario years ago that had 17 different endings. I do not recommend making that many if you're building it yourself. Um, there are ways to do it more simply than that and and ways well, to manage that complexity. Well, you were um, telling us about that simple, uh, the simpler version with the, just the yeah. one question and how that's still exactly. a valid scenario, still valuable yes. for training. Yeah. Yeah. And so sometimes it is just the one, one question and then, but have three realistic choices where somebody might make a mistake and then you can give, show the consequences of that mistake or give immediate feedback just on one question. And even if that's often the way that I get clients started, they aren't necessarily always ready to get into a branching scenario right away, but I can almost always convince a client, well, in this knowledge check that we're doing at the end of the training, instead of the regular quiz questions, let's try a few of these scenario-based questions. And almost always 
clients can see the value of that in workplace training. Okay. And so that's, that's an easy thing to convince oh, them. Sorry, if I, <laughs> I did talk over you, that was a good ending. I did, I missed those last few words. That's good. Okay. But that that was a good ending. Do you want to do you want to kind of add any more for the ending of that second chunk? Do you want to do a little and and then you'll do a little edit on this? So oh, just a um, little edit, just as if yeah, you feel like it's, you'd like sure. to revolt resort. I'll stop talking. Okay. So I think with the the one question scenario, you can have the show the consequences and give immediate feedback. And people still practice it and clients will almost always, or stakeholders in, a, in an organization, can almost always see the value of that and will buy into that. And that's a very easy way to get started with scenario-based learning without necessarily committing yourself to creating an entire convoluted branching scenario right off the bat. You're listening to Perspectives in Parryville. Okay, so we've found out heaps more about um, scenario-based approaches. I'm just flicking through the Abominable Snowman Choose Your Own Adventure book. And when you make the choice, when the reader makes the choice and turns to, say, page 56 then they just get along with their story, you know, and they, that's the enjoyable part. However, when one is using scenario-based approaches in training, learning and teaching, there's often feedback because we can't have people making poor decisions, in a, especially in a workplace, without having it pointed out to them, no, no, that this is not the correct method. So what I'm wondering is how do you approach this whole territory of feedback to learners within scenario-based approaches? How's that for a question? <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I think that's a great question because I think we know that one of the things that works for learners, whether we're talking about kids or adult learners, is practice with feedback, right? And branching scenarios give us a way to do practice in e-learning, but we need to give feedback too. And it needs to be more than just, again, in, in multiple choice questions in workplace training, often it is, that's correct. Sorry, that's incorrect. So we got to have more useful feedback. That doesn't tell, that doesn't really help people learn that well. So in a branching scenario, there's two classes of feedback. There is intrinsic feedback and instructional feedback. And I am using this terminology from Ruth Clark's book, Scenario-Based E-Learning. Um, if you are familiar, I, I think there are many people, at least in the e-learning, corporate e-learning field who are familiar with Clark and Meyer's um, e-learning, the science of instruction. Ruth Clark's one of the big researchers in the field. Um, and she has a whole book on scenario-based learning where she talks about this idea of intrinsic feedback and instructional feedback. Intrinsic feedback is the consequences. It is the stuff that intrinsically happens as a result of the decision you made. So the in The Abominable Snowman, if you choose to cancel the meeting and go find Carlos, then something happens. The something that happens is your intrinsic consequence. Okay. 
I'm following. Then you could have an instructional feedback. Now, in a book like the Choose Your Own Adventure, we don't have that instructional feedback. But the instructional feedback would be the, oh, you know, you asked a closed question instead of an open-ended question, and that's why the patient only gave you a one-word answer. You need to get more information. Try a different question. Mm. It's like a, a, a combination of a meta meta talking, a teacher talk almost. It's what yeah. the teacher might say in the classroom to right. give meaningful feedback that's really expanded. It's not just um, a one-word response. It's right. kind of it's the why. Why is this a good answer right. or why is this a uh, less than adequate response? Right. Yes. And, and there are various forms of that. Sometimes you can, you might think of instructional feedback as coaching yep. and intrinsic feedback as consequences. So if we think of it as in a, you, you have a scenario, you make a decision, you have an immediate consequence. There's, you make a decision and something happens in the scenario because the story's got to move forward. So something else has to happen. The conversation continues. The person says something back. The machine makes a different noise, a different error message, you know, whatever it is that you're doing in the scenario. And then the coaching. Now, there are different ways to do it. You're probably going to have some sort of consequence that shows up right away. Yeah, like I guess Sometimes that would, you might that also would... have a delayed consequence, right? There might be um, I, I saw somebody was working on project management scenario. And you can agree to add the, you know, you're making software and somebody requests a new feature. And so you do the software and the immediate response is that that stakeholder is happy because you did the thing they asked for. The long term <laughs> response is it takes longer and it's more expensive and you throw off the budget because you agreed to add this extra stuff without checking on how that affected the rest of the project. I like that. Sounds like a complex scenario, that one. That one was that one um, was a was a little bit more complex scenario, right? This is probably not a, you know, a, a quite in the beginner thing. But she also, but it's you know, the one world. nice thing in a brain. Yeah, it's, 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 it's real a, world, and she's yeah. teaching project management skills and and these concepts of balancing the time and the scope and the cost, and these are the constraints of a project that you have to balance all of these, and it's. It's a complex concept that is hard to teach with just a linear thing. And so she has this sort of a simulation where you are playing with those different variables and affects the outcome different ways. Mm, yeah, it's, I can see there'd be a zillion talking points at every one of those right? decisions. Yeah. Now, you can build in, you can have feedback that is sort of the abstract off-screen narrator, just feedback at the end, you know, like especially before someone, if someone fails the scenario and they have to restart, clearly you need some sort of more direct instructional feedback that says you missed this and therefore you didn't get this piece of information or the scope got completely thrown off because of this, you know, try the scenario again and this time see if you can keep the scope you know, if you can balance the scope with the requests of the stakeholder. But so, that's, you're saying that's, that might happen at the end of the process. And that might happen at the end. So 
sometimes you might do that coaching, that instructional feedback. You might do it after every choice. That makes sense. And sometimes you might do it at the end. There is some of the, the research on this is that people who are novices, who are less experienced, who are learning a brand new skill, need more feedback and they need it faster. Yeah, well, that makes sense. It's like a hand-holding, right? it's reassuring to them. There's a whole range of reasons why that would be a good idea. Exactly, right? It's it's the idea the, the the teachers in your audience will recognize the idea of scaffolding and like having more structure at the beginning and having more hints, right? It is, so so yes, you're going to have people who are new at it are that it is effectively a way of doing some scaffolding of you can do a lot of hints, Sometimes you might have an on-screen coach that directly tells you afterwards, okay, here's what it is. Now, if you are training salespeople who have all an average of 10 years of experience, and it's just, you're teaching them an extra thing that they're adding on to the stuff that they're doing already, it's, you know, an improvement on an existing skill rather than something brand new, they probably don't need a coach telling them after every single choice. In fact, they'll probably find it annoying <laughs> and like talking down to them. And and especially with adult learners, we can be patronizing and we have to be cautious of that. So maybe, maybe we only after each decision do the consequences and they see what happens. And then at the end of the scenario before a restart or at specific points, we would then give some feedback. Or maybe the coach just does some hints, but not some very, you know, not quite as much directly. You chose this and it was wrong because try this instead. Yeah, it's stripped back of <laughs> stripped right. back of judgment for a start, right. but stripped right. back of it's just giving the essential information. So it's sort of moving right. things along, however. Right. And, and giving them the information. Again, we're back to that the idea of our job is to help learners make better decisions. Feedback is a big part of how you help people make better decisions. And so getting that balance right of the feedback of giving people enough that they can do the scenario and not feel too frustrated, that they have enough guidance that they feel like they can get back on track. And also in a branching scenario, sometimes you make a mistake and you, you might actually then have the opportunity to go back a decision or to pick something else. You might reuse a choice. You know, you, it would be if you're simulating a conversation, if you would start with a, a closed question, a yes or no question. And then the person would say yes or no. And you'd realize, oh, wait, I didn't get enough information. I should ask an open-ended question instead in real life, you would have the opportunity to fix that mistake. And so, therefore, you would ask the question and then it would move on from there. Yeah, because you might say, oh, let me ask it another way or something. And then you've right. kind of you've got exactly. a second go at it and then you get more information. You, conversation yeah. flows a bit better. Yeah. So, so you would try it a second way and, you know, you would you would do it that way. And so I think that... In the same way, we can have sort of, we can give people the opportunity to correct their mistakes. Because again, in the real world, when we want people, it's not that we expect people to have perfect performance every time, 
part of what we want is for them to know what happens if they make a mistake and how to get themselves unstuck. Yeah, that's so profound. It is so sort of um, valuable and useful, but often in my humble experience, overlooked as it's mm-hmm. for people that are just learning or maybe they're nervous or maybe the stakes are high. It's kind of reframing or emphasizing that training is a safe space to, to mm-hmm. learn. And then if you can kind of design your learning experiences in such a way, then that's great. It supports the whole um, purpose of why you're having training in the first place. So is this sort of approach applicable across all the different fields? Like you mentioned, a whole range of different fields that you've worked across in your career. Um, You know, do, do all areas would they benefit from scenario-based approaches and this sort of feedback? I would say almost always you can do some some sort of at least a mini scenario, um, at least that much. I think branching scenarios with the complexity of them, the reality is, is that they do take some time to write and to build and to troubleshoot. Um, and because, you know, you have to review them and you have to, you know, check things and make sure that the links are all working and that people don't get stuck anywhere. I think branching scenarios in particular work for complex skills and skills where there's not necessarily a clear right or wrong answer. Things where there is some gray area. In project management, right, that example of, you know, balancing time and scope and cost, the reality is that there is not one answer that is the right answer for every situation in project management. Sometimes the budget is 100% firm and there is no way that you are going to change that cost. And so you are either going to change the time or the scope to match that cost. And so you've got to play with those variables. Yeah, that's the brutal reality in some situations. Yeah, sure. And so, but in other situations, I, you know, sometimes with the clients, yeah, you know, like the cost is like, we'll we'll pay more to get it right, but we really want this extra feature in here, or we want to have this additional thing, or yes, indeed, we, we're going to do, I've done course development and, oh, okay, well, actually, I know that you did this branching scenario and it was... 55 passages in the initial thing. And I had one that ended up at, I think it was 75 by 75 slides by the time in the, in the final product, because we went through more revisions and they paid for extra revisions. And we just increased the scenario in order to get all the things in because they, they came up with things and it was worth it to them to get the product that they wanted. Actually, just on that point, what, what does the end user experience like in terms of, um, what 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 do they actually click on or or see or hear or read in these? Because I'm I know that there's a, a variety of different ways you can build these. So just yeah, what is what are some typical kind of oh what are deliverables I suppose? Yeah, so a a, a typical one for a branching scenario would be a, a conversation simulation because that's almost you know that's a that's a very common thing. So like I did one that was a, you know, training for doctors on how to talk to patients about uh, decreasing their alcohol consumption. 
Um, and of course, this is a complex skill. There's There was a process that they were following. This was part of a bigger training. So we'd already done a fair amount of training of some of the concepts in the process. We'd done some smaller scenario-based questions. And then we had one big practice at the end of like, let's tie all the skills together and do it in a big scenario to practice the whole conversation of coaching this patient. So in that case, I had a picture of a patient and a little case study of here's his bio. Here's the screen, his answers on a screening tool that for alcohol, um, for alcohol use in that case. And then it was, you know, that you know that he's got gastritis and you need to coach him on his alcohol. So what's the first thing that you say? And there were three buttons with three different openings for the doctor to say to the patient. Or a little, and little then depending on what they did, it went somewhere else. Um, sometimes what they might see might be just text. I built a branching scenario in Google Forms, which is a tool that I think, you know, lots of teachers are using it. There's some there's some neat things with Google Forms, but because you can jump to different sections, you can build a nonlinear activity. It does help, I think, to map it out in either a mind mapping tool or Twine first, but it can be text and it looks like the the choices in a Google form. And that's an okay thing too. The important thing in a branching scenario is really the text and how you write the choices and how people are cognitively engaging with the content. How are they thinking about the decisions? I've done fancy multimedia. I've done interactive video scenarios where we hire actors and like make have videos and like do those things. And those are super cool. And I love I love writing those video scripts and making those. Those are neat. The reality is that many situations don't need that much multimedia. And if you can get good writing and make people think and make good decisions, that's probably the most important thing that we can do with branching scenarios in that helping learners make better decisions. In this episode, I chatted with Christy Tucker, a learning experience designer. You can find out more about this episode in the show notes, including links to Christy's extensive blog and links to the blog posts, build a branching scenario in Google Forms and Twine makes branching scenarios easier. Thank you for listening to Perspectives in Parryville.